Welcome to the Vet Voice Foundation podcast, where we interview veterans employed or advocating within the conservation and public land space. I am your host, Kate Hoyt. On this episode, we speak with Air Force veteran Liz O'Haran Lee. She served as a munitions specialist and deployed to Iraq and Afghanistan. Liz discusses her complicated relationship with her grandfather and his service during World War II, and how they both turned to writing in the outdoors to walk off the war. My name is Liz O'Haran Lee, and I currently work in customer experience for a tech company in Denver, Colorado. Can you talk a little bit about your life growing up, and why did you decide to join the Air National Guard? So I grew up in, in a little farm town in, in Wisconsin. My mom was farm girl and my dad was not, and he won. So I did not grow up on a farm, <laughs> but definitely had the rural sort of aspect in my life growing up. And, you know, just like very, very typical Midwestern small town life. Stoplight put in my senior year of high school. <laughs> Otherwise there wasn't one. <laughs> and I think my folks both instilled in me an appreciation for nature and for the outdoors. My folks lived in Alaska for a few years doing commercial salmon fishing before I was born. So they were just kind of very much frontiers people. And, you know, growing up high school, very small high school. And for me, when I was looking at college, what to do after high school, I played sports in college. It was a small high school, so I played all the sports. (laughs) Um, My calculation for joining the National Guard was really centered on a couple things. One, it felt like a way to still be involved in my community in a more meaningful way. Just my parents really instilled in me the aspect of service and to serve others. And for me, the military was not an immediate connection. My grandfather had served in the Marines, something you know that I really respected his service in World War II, but I had never envisioned that for myself. But my best friend, who was a year older than I was, her father was a senior enlisted ranking member of the National Guard in Madison, Wisconsin. And she decided to join. She was a year older than me. She was kind of a artist. I was the one who played all the sports. And I went down to her basic training graduation in Texas. And for the first time, I sort of understood what it looked like to be a woman in the military. And it actually looked to me like a fit. It looked like a lot of fun, to be honest. And to see a group of like 60, you know, super sharp looking women doing things together in unison as a group, it felt very similar to playing high school sports. Notably, this is definitely before September 11th. So this was the summer of 2001. And so really like combat war was very separate from much of my experience growing up. And so the military to me and the National Guard in particular felt very much like a way to serve my local community. And on top of it, it would help pay for college. So that was sort of like the feather in the cap in terms of it wasn't a determining factor in my deciding to join, but it certainly felt like a way to gain a little bit more independence from my very generous and loving, but occasionally overbearing parents. All right. So you end up joining. Can you talk about your MOS and your deployments? Yeah. So when I decided to join the Air National Guard, you know, my choices were sort of determined by the fact that my best friend had joined and had joined a particular unit within the guard. And so, you know, already had a job. I met people that she served with. I really liked them. I thought they were interesting and seemed really hardworking and um, like good folks. And so I chose to join the same career field as she did. 
largely because of the fact that I had gotten a glimpse into what it would be like to serve with those people. Did not have a firm understanding of what the career field actually was, which was munition systems. And so really, you know, anything that an F-16 fighter jet uses for weapons, we would assemble, transport, inspect. And so I spent a lot of my time in the service actually in a, like a munitions depot, kind of at the way corner of the military base, far away from everyone else, typically building bombs and then driving them very slowly out to the flight line. But again, this was this was before September 11th. So the concept of bombs and missiles in Madison, Wisconsin was not something that we were actually ever going to use is very much how it felt. So how long after you initially signed up, did you end up deploying and did the realities of war kind of sink in? Yeah, my timeline for joining the military and, you know, how my journey went from there. I made the decision to join in late summer 2001, you know, did all of the medical stuff, signed all the paperwork and my actual enlistment date where I raised my right hand and swore in was September 13th, 2001. So two days after 9-11. And I actually was supposed to go in and swear in you know, September 10th, that Monday right before, and there was a, a glitch. And, you know, they asked if I could come in on Thursday. Instead, I said, yeah, of course, no problem. And then the next day was September 11th. And so, you know, being a senior in high school at the time, which I was, it was just a very bizarre kind of earth shattering week, you know, for so many people, obviously, but I had kind of made the decision to join the National Guard in my mind to clean up after tornadoes, you know, maybe uh, protests at the University of Wisconsin, hopefully not have to deal with that and, you know, civil unrest type stuff, but more cleaning up after natural disasters. And and then very quickly that all very much changed when, you know, we were talking about World War III and our generation's Pearl Harbor. So I ended up enlisting on the 13th. I decided to go through with it, largely because my grandfather made the decision to join the Marines, really ran down to the recruiting station after Pearl Harbor. And I just felt like it was not an honorable thing to back out at the last second because of the threat of, you know, war, even if that wasn't my original reason for joining. And so I went through with my enlistment, finished out high school, did some training, ultimately um, did not get up, end up getting called up or deploying until the fall of 2004. So August of 2004. And then I deployed for about five months, came home, went back to college, and then did two more short deployments while I was in college. So I ended up deploying three times to the Middle East while I was working on my bachelor's degree. And so when you deployed, were you in Iraq the three times or Iraq, Afghanistan? Yeah, so I was in Iraq twice. I was at Balad Air Base, about 45 miles northwest of Baghdad, twice. And then I was actually at El Udeed Air Base, supporting Afghanistan for my other deployment. So what did you do during your deployments? Yes, on deployment, it was interesting because being in the National Guard, when you get activated and deployed, you typically integrate with active duty units, or at least in the Air National Guard, that's what happens. And so a group of us deploys and then we get paired up to work at a munitions depot with folks we've never met before in like very intense, you know, high explosive type work. So fusing bombs, inspecting missiles, assembling bombs and missiles, loading them using heavy equipment onto 
trailers and then slowly transporting them out to the flight line where then we hand them off to specialized loaders who then load the weapons onto fighter jets. So for me, there was sort of like the added stress of one, only ever having done this in training with cement filled, you know, practice dummy bombs. And then all of a sudden working with many, many live munitions I had never even seen before in all these different configurations. And then two, doing it with people who I did not know. And so largely strangers who I had never worked with before had, you know, had no basis of real trust with, you know, we did trust each other because we're all wearing the uniform, but really I had not interacted with these folks before. And then a third kind of dimension of it being very much a male dominated career field. And so almost exclusively doing this job with, with mostly strange men. So it was kind of a very, you know, as far as the range of military experiences can go, I ultimately was generally really safe and not driving in convoys or experiencing firsthand firefights, but it was not without its unique stressors. How long did you serve in the Air National Guard? I served seven years in the Air National Guard from 2001 to 2008. Okay. And so you finally get out. And where do you end up? Do you stay in Wisconsin? Did you finish up your bachelor's degree and get a master's degree? Can you talk through that? You know, my college experience was pretty convoluted <laughs> because I did three deployments while I was in college. And so it took me a long time to graduate and, you know, I didn't really get summers off because I often was working at our local base on orders during summers and, you know, missed a couple semesters of school because of deployments. And I felt like I had really kind of missed out on a quote unquote normal college experience. And so I planned to take some time off after I graduated and after I got back from my last deployment, which they both kind of coincided timing wise. And my plan actually was my folks had worked in Alaska doing commercial fishing. And my plan for the summer was just to move to Alaska for the summer and find a seasonal summer job up there and live in wild country and not have to worry about a lot of things that I had spent most of my you know last five or six years worrying about. And I really just kind of wanted to check out and be, you know, be in nature. But ultimately, that's not what happened. Um, I came back from my last deployment and I ended up co-founding a nonprofit with a handful of other student veterans with the main goal of, of fighting for an improved GI Bill benefit, so education benefit for folks getting a college degree. And I ended up co-founding this organization, then I moved out to DC to help get it off the ground. The fight for a, a GI Bill was heating up at the time. We felt like it was really important to actually be present in DC. And Washington DC is probably the last place I planned to move to, but it was just sort of a a lot of factors and just crazy opportunity to try to get a huge benefit for veterans passed. And so I ultimately ended up moving out to DC after I graduated college. Did you find returning home or the jump to DC to be any challenging? It's kind of like you went from a military experience right into a hyper veteran circle. Do you think that helped with your transition at all? I think transitioning... Transitioning is a weird thing for National Guard members in general because you're kind of always transitioning on weekends. You know, your drill weekends, you wear the uniform and then you go back to being a completely normal civilian. You sort of have this world that's military and then this world that knows you completely separately from the military. So you're kind of always 
transitioning these between these identities. And that was ex especially my experience in college on the weekends, putting on a military uniform and practicing building bombs. And then during the week, being at the University of Wisconsin and walking around campus in civilian clothes and the Iraq war protests and kind of always having to function in two very different worlds. That was definitely exacerbated when I got home from deployments where it was just a huge shock to come back from being in Iraq and then coming back and literally within two days be on a college campus with like the birds chirping and people running around wearing backpacks and protesting the war and just a huge culture shock that was extremely difficult. We weren't very good at decompression and like redeployment back home, uh, especially when in 2004, 2005, 2006, we were not good at that. And so it was really just a huge shock to kind of readjust. So I think when I actually separated from the military, I was pretty used to, you know, the, making the mental transition back and forth between military and civilian. I had, had some practice with that. But what I then realized I really missed was the folks I knew in the military who were my safe place, who I could just be with and not have to talk about things with, who we all understood these shared experiences. Suddenly I didn't have access to that anymore. And I lost that community by separating. And I think that's what I really struggled with. I found it in other veterans in DC, but I really did miss, and I've never found it since the, you know, I think maybe firefighters have this, I think, you know, public servants have this, but that really tight, you know, mission focus of like, we're doing this thing together and it's a physical thing and we're gonna tackle it together. I just have never found that in a civilian job since. I've not thought or talked about this stuff in so long. And it's just weird to have it all come like fl flooding back, listening to you talk. Yeah, I haven't thought about it. it makes uh -huh. me feel a little sad. <laughs> We're going to build off of the outdoors a little bit. So at Vet Boys Foundation, we talk a lot about how getting outdoors helps us walk off the war and reconnect with our loved ones and communities um, and allows many folks to decompress. Did you find that the case? And what is your relationship to the outdoors? I mean, nature is just my, it's all like, it's my happy, I mean, it's my happy place. That's true for so many people. And for me, but being totally honest, I'm probably more outsidesy than outdoorsy. So for me, just being outside and being away from a computer, you know, being on a trail. I don't need to be backcountry, hiking, camping. I don't have to be totally remote in order to get that fulfillment. For me, it's just being near water, being in the trees, bird watching. All of those things are sort of what helps me get through the rest of life. <laughs> just those glimpses of all these ecosystems that are just existing without of all the complicating factors that mankind has laid over top of it. All of our civilizations and wars and disagreements and technology and all these things we've layered on top of nature to try to drive meaning. For me, it's nature is very much a stripped down version of what's most important in life. Like to get real hierarchical about it, it's just <laughs> things just existing. <laughs> I don't know, I find a lot of peace in stripping so many of the distractions that we experience every single day away.
I actually did go to Alaska after I got back from my last appointment. Before I moved to DC, I went with my mom and my sister and we went salmon fishing and went on hikes and just got a chance to see her life in her early 20s up there, which was a really special girls trip in a really wild country. The only girls that I saw salmon fishing on the Kenai River. <laughs> there were no other women out there except for our little boat of ladies. So it was just a really fun girls trip. That's awesome. Um, so after you returned home, you wrote a piece called Even Butterflies Go to War. Can you talk about writing that piece and the connection to your grandfather? Yeah, my relationship with my grandfather, I've always been close with my grandfather. So he served in World War II as a Marine. He did three combat landings in all-terrain vehicles onto the shore at Guadalcanal and a couple other islands in the South Pacific. And statistically, he should not have survived three of them, just based on the numbers of the atrocity of and decimation of his units. But it was something he never, ever, ever spoke about. And he began writing about it during my childhood. And my father, my uncles, my aunt, he didn't speak about this to anybody, but he began writing about it. And I read his memoir at a pretty young age that he ended up putting together and you know self-publishing. And it was a window into his history, into this really important history from the 1940s and afterwards. And he struggled with severe post-traumatic stress his entire life, really well into his 80s. But for me, trying to understand his experience, I, you know, was strictly derived from writing. So we never really spoke about our experiences. I never felt confident asking him questions about his because I didn't get the sense he really wanted to talk about it further. And so I derived my understanding of his experiences through reading his writing. And he was actually very clear that he very much opposed the Iraq war. And he really hated the fact that I was serving in Iraq. And while he supported me and he loved me, he really hated that I was there, which sort of became this huge elephant in the room when I came back from deployments. He didn't really ask me any questions about my experiences either. And so I would write home and he would kind of acknowledge my writing. But most of what our mutual understanding about each other's experiences was derived from our respective writing about our experiences. And did he read the things that you they wrote or published? He he did, yeah. He did read it. And he would send me little notes. He would read my letters home. He read my blog. But he would just say, keep your head down <laughs> over there. Or hurry up and come home safe. My grandma actually had a... His wife, my grandmother, had a <laughs> letter to the editor published in the local paper while I was deployed, you know, decrying the war and, and she mailed me a, a clipping of it while I was deployed. So, you know, like there, it was not really a, it was just a hard, I also coming back from deployments, I was not ready to talk about things and also try to process them in the, in the broader, like geopolitical context of things. I very much was just trying to process my own experiences. And so for me talking about the policy and the geopolitical constructs that led to the war was really, really triggering because I also had mixed feelings about participating. I was just kind of trying to work through my own stuff. On a personal note, we've talked about 
not thinking about being a veteran anymore, which has taken, you know, 15 years almost, I would say for, for both of us, maybe a little like a year shorter for you and how freeing that experience can be. Can you expand on that? Or do you think your grandfather ever ended up feeling that way? You know, I served seven years and it's been 12 years since I left the military. And what has really been remarkable to me is how, and I only was deployed of those seven years, I only actually served in a in deployment zone for about not, you know, nine total months. And it is just incredible how those nine months have infiltrated like every aspect of my life since where I felt like for years and years, my whole world was dominated by thinking about the wars, by thinking about veterans, by thinking about trauma, thinking about pain. And I think, you know, I, part of that is because I became really involved in being a veterans advocate after I left the military. So it was sort of inescapable. It's, you know, was my work. It was how I made most of my friends. So my whole world was just full of people who had experienced the trauma of war. And I think only recently, just in the last two years, to be honest, and I think largely because I had a career transition where I, you know, began to work in the tech industry, have I been able to stop thinking? I don't think about it every day. <laughs> and it just, it feels like sort of like a weight has been lifted. There will definitely be things that trigger it. Like I hear a helicopter, you know, I have like a memory. I smell hard boiled eggs. I have a memory because that was sort of like the smell of sulfur and, you know, just hard boiled eggs. <laughs> I don't think about it as often. It feels sort of, freeing to be able to have a separate like a new identity that feels a little bit even though it's not separate it feels a little bit separate from you know I'm not just a veteran I have I have another dimension to my personality I know you said your grandfather didn't really talk about it and I'm assuming he went on to do totally different work in his life do you think he ever ended up feeling that way or did he always kind of hold in this experience and that weighed on him? I don't think my grandfather ever decoupled his military experience from day-to-day -day life. He really experienced extreme combat, truly horrible things. And, you know, he was traumatized to the extent where he didn't take advantage of the GI Bill coming home and he worked hard, retired early, moved to the Florida Keys for a couple of years, lived in Florida for most of his retirement. I mean, he would do things well into his 50s, 60s, 70s where he would, I mean, he had night terrors until the 80s. I mean, on one occasion, my strangled my grandmother in her sleep and she woke up to him choking her and he was having a night terror related to combat that had occurred decades earlier. But I do know that when he started writing about his experience, which in 1984, I was about a year old, for the first time ever, he wrote us a letter and mailed it. 4 a.m., woke up from a night terror, sat down at a typewriter and just started writing. And it's, it's one run-on sentence, this letter. And he said he was never going to speak about it again. He popped it in the mailbox. Later that morning, showed up in everybody's mailbox a few days later, and it was the first time any of them, any of his children had ever heard him speak about the war. And after that, you know, he really 
my my uncle started asking him to write more and he initially refused but he started to think maybe it would be a a good thing for him to do in terms of us understanding his experience and that family history and then I think also he started to realize there was a little bit of a pressure release valve when he was writing about it my understanding is that his night tears actually ended up subsiding when he was writing his memoir and afterwards let's jump into the essay that you wrote even butterflies go to war can you read a little bit of that for us while i was deployed to iraq I wrote updates for friends and family, but also for myself. After writing about the butterflies visit, I received a note from my grandfather. I saw those butterflies too, he said. They were so beautiful. Not the same ones, different, but the same. It had taken him a long time to write about his butterflies. Before dawn on December 7th, 1984, he awoke in a sweat despite the frigid Wisconsin winter. This wasn't unusual for him, even so many years after he'd returned from the Pacific. But on this Pearl Harbor anniversary, he'd finally had enough. He roused himself, made black coffee, pulled off the typewriter's cover, and began pecking. When he finished, he made four copies, one for each of his children, licked the stamps and envelopes, and dropped them in the mail. The letter was largely one single sentence, 717 words long, in fact. I counted them. Tumbling thoughts twisted and turned. The stream of conscious run-on sentence full of haunting memories concluded with a final paragraph. War is one stinking, terrifying hell. There are no heroes in war. There are only the survivors, the dying, and the dead. He wrote that he wouldn't speak of it again, but at least now we knew his story. Implied, don't ask me any questions. I was less than a year old when my parents received the letter. My Uncle Bill managed to persuade my grandfather to keep writing, gently offering that World War II veterans were a vanishing breed and that family records would be incomplete without it. My grandfather finally conceded and began typing again. Rather than simply purging like he had that night in December, he researched history on the tolls he landed on, detailed descriptions of dehydration and jungle rot, copied and pasted crude pictures of elephantiasis, of arms, legs, and even testicles. He wrote about Shamoro culture that he witnessed on Guam, where he fought to liberate the island from the Japanese. He resurrected buried memories of friends named Tommy and Jimmy, who were mowed down by machine gun fire. Some stories would never make it to paper, he admitted, weren't meant to be told. Another 15 years passed before my grandfather finished. After I read his completed memoir, I wrote him an email. Didn't ask him any questions. I was a young teenager and his story moved me to tears, and I wanted him to know that it had profoundly impacted his granddaughter. I couldn't begin to imagine what he had been through, I told him, but I was eternally grateful he chose to trust us. It touched him enough that he printed off my email and included it in the sparse copies of his memoir that he ran off at a print shop and gave away to family and a few old war buddies who were still alive. I didn't understand why he included my email, but I found comfort knowing that it had resonated with him. I've returned to his memoir over the years, studying the pages back and forth, memorizing sentences and even a few paragraphs. Although the memoir indicated a willingness to share his history, I never brought it up after that email. I feared prying and making him dig into abscesses he didn't want to revisit. It never felt right. Holiday gatherings were loud and full of dark beer. Early bird Friday suppers were lighthearted. Packer and Badger games demanded our full attention. My enlistment date into the National Guard fell on September 13, 2001, two days after the planes hit. 
I hadn't intended to join the military in the wake of an attack on American soil like my grandfather had after Pearl Harbor, but my path began to resemble his. Only I wasn't called up right away, so I continued on with college, serving one weekend a month. But when I would visit my grandparents for lunch between classes, constantly wondering if and when I would be deployed, we mostly skipped over the wars. Instead, we talked about the books we were reading, avoiding the elephant in the room that dredged up painful memories for him and stirred deep anxieties in me. If we neared the topic, he shook his head and waved off, and we went back to our lunches. I could tell how much he hated that I would be involved in the war. When I eventually deployed, I found it difficult to speak about my experiences, but it was easier to write. And I was inspired by my grandfather's willingness, although initially resistant, to do the same. Whenever I posted an update or sent an email or letter home, I'd get little notes in return from my grandfather. Sometimes a quick email, sometimes a short letter. Keep your head down. Stay safe. We're thinking of you. We want you home. That was about the extent of it. No questions, even after I had returned home from each of my three deployments. Perhaps he didn't want to ruin our tuna salad sandwiches. Despite writing while I was deployed, in the months after returning home, I clammed up, unable to make much sense of my experiences. My father encouraged me to keep writing, just as my uncle had encouraged my grandfather decades earlier. Dad told me that after my grandfather wrote the pre-dawn letter, he stopped having night terrors. He had kept things bottled inside for four decades, not wanting to uncork them. He hadn't known putting words to paper would be so therapeutic. For me, I found that my thoughts slowly began to feel less like a lottery ball machine, and when they started to settle, they wiggled back out onto paper. My grandfather passed not long after I returned from my last deployment, nearly a decade ago now. I would trade just about anything to sit down with him to talk. Maybe not even about our wars, just about writing them. I wonder if he felt lighter after he wrote things down. I wonder if he pulled the pages out when he finished typing for the day and felt resolution. I wonder if he felt like vomiting while writing like I sometimes do. Every once in a while, I find memorized phrases from his memoir drifting through my mind when I read the news. War is one stinking, terrifying hell. But I also remember that I saw the butterflies, and it brings me some peace that I know that he saw them too. At Vet Boys Foundation, we're always looking to share stories of service and connections to the outdoors. If you're interested in sharing your experience via writing or joining our podcast, send me an email, kate at vetvoicefoundation.org. This is a Vet Voice Foundation production. Our producer is Allison Bailey, and I'm your host, Kate Hoyt.